Well, please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 as we continue our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me. We want everybody to be able to follow along in the Bible. So the guys that are making their way down the aisle have some. Get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you that's marked at James chapter 1 so you can look at Scripture with us and see what we're considering from God's Word. I recently saw a commercial for a medication that started with, do you find yourself laying around, lethargic, not getting things done? It's not your fault. You may have, and then they talked about some label for symptoms that are now a condition. So you may have, but here's what we know. It's not your fault. I like to go to college hockey games when I can. And at Yoast Arena, where U of M plays their hockey games, they, the student section has a bunch of cheers that they do to razz the opposing team. One of them is when the Wolverines score on the opposing team, all the students stand up and they point at the goalie. And they yell, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. You know, there are people for whom fault, failure, is something that they simply cannot bear. And so we're very quick to say, it's not your fault. Or if we want to give someone a hard time, to immediately point out that it is your fault. There are cultures, entire cultures, that are called shame cultures, where it is not acceptable to fail. Or one cannot at least be thought of as having failed. And it leads many to cut corners, even cheat, so that they're not thought of as failures. My undergraduate degree is in computer science, and I obtained that from Wayne State University. It's a fine school, but like I'm sure all schools, it has people who fit in those categories. And Wayne State has a multiplicity of ethnicities, which is a very, very good thing. But there are networks within the university that work together to get things done. And I discovered, I was not part of any particular network, but I discovered much later one of the ways some of the networks get things done. They help each other in ways that are not licit. That is, they cheat. We have a hard time admitting failure. Think about your children if you have them. If you're offering them money or you're offering them candy or you're offering them ice cream, you have their full rapt attention. But if you're going to reprimand them, they have ADD. Or in our culture, about the best we can do to admit failure and culpability is a quick, my bad. But God actually points a spotlight on our hearts to show us our failure and even our sin. We have difficulty accepting responsibility for failures of any type, and especially sin. Let me ask you, when was the last time you accepted responsibility for sin and you confessed it? The word confess in your Bible means say the same thing. Say what God says about your sin. Eliminate, as you've heard me say many times, the weasel words. You accepted responsibility for your sin. You confessed it and you sought forgiveness. I'm asking that of everyone here as I ask it of myself. When was the last time you did that? And the truth is, I would be willing to wager, if I were a gambling man, that for the majority of us here, we can't remember. And the majority of us here say we know Jesus. And that we know what forgiveness is. We've received forgiveness and we are called to give and to seek forgiveness from others, and yet it happens so very rarely. Instead, we prefer to play the blame game. 
And it's something that we've had since our first parents were placed in Eden. And you know that when God approached Adam, he didn't take responsibility for his sin. He said the woman. And when God approached the woman, she said the serpent. And all of that implies very strongly that it's the woman you gave me, says Adam, the serpent you made, and ultimately it's your fault, God. And we confront that issue beginning in verse 13 of James chapter 1. To whom goes the blame for our sin? Can we admit it? Can we own it? Can we confess it? And can we seek forgiveness for it? Now, what we're going to see in verse 13 and following is connected to what we have seen over the last few weeks, beginning in verse number 2, where we're told, my brothers, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. Because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then perseverance, we're told, ultimately produces maturity. Now in verses 13 and 14, you'll see in your NIV, which most of you have, verse 13 says, when tempted. No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted. Now that word that's used, tempted, is the same Greek word that's used in verse 2 for trials. So we're considering now the same subject from a different angle. Trials, we have seen over the last few weeks, are brought into our lives to produce good things. Perseverance and maturity. But that same trial can be the occasion for one to fall into sin, to be tempted and then sin. And so the same word, translated differently, because of two different reactions to precisely the same circumstance. So you have trial in verse 2. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. And then in verse 12 that we saw last week, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Again, the same word. And so when these things happen, the question is, is it going to be a trial that results in maturity or a temptation that results in sin. Same circumstance, different reaction. What is the difference between being tried or in a trial that leads to good results and being tempted that leads to sinful results? Let me give you two. The first is this, God's intention. It is God's intention in the circumstance that He allows into our lives, even adverse circumstances, and thus they are called trials. It is His intention in those for them to be used for good purposes, for maturity, and in order to demonstrate the genuineness, the reality of our faith. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, It is your faith, your belief that's being tested. So the first difference is God's intention. God intends the circumstance to be a trial that leads to maturity. But the second thing is man's nature. The difference between what should be a trial leading to maturity but is often a temptation that leads to sin is our nature. Every trial brings temptation. And we are called to resist the temptation that comes with the trial. So financial difficulty can bring us to question God's providence in our lives, for instance. Or the death of a loved one can cause us to question God's love for us. Or the suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question whether or not God is just and in control of His world or cause us to question even His existence. Now notice in each of these, and we could make a long list of circumstances that are trials that try what we believe that could be occasions that tempt us to sin. In all of them, they're all about what we believe with regard to God. What do I believe about God's providential control of His world even when I'm in financial difficulty? 
Do I still believe that he is working all things together for good, including, including my good? What do I believe about God's love when I experience the death of a loved one? What do I believe about God's justice when I look and I see the wicked prosper as the psalmist lamented? What's being tested is what we believe, and in particular what we believe about God. Now this issue of whose fault it is when we sin only arises if you're thinking about what's been said from verse 2 and following. Our belief is put to the test and the implication throughout those verses has been that the testing comes from God. It hasn't been explicitly stated until you get down to verse 12 that we saw last week where the one who perseveres under trial will pass the test and receive the crown of life from God. And so we see down in verse 12, it's God all along who's allowing these circumstances for his good purposes. And so if you're thinking about it, it may well raise an objection that God is the one who has allowed this circumstance in my life. So why is he not the one who's responsible for the outcome? He set me up for failure. And you couple that with our natural tendency to play the blame game and not want to accept responsibility. And indeed, it's a question that many people ask, even if they will not speak, out, speak it out loud. Now, we're going to bow and pray in just a moment and ask God to help us. But before we do, I want to ask you all, did you come to hear from God? I uh, sent you an email this week and said I had this brief radio interview. And uh, one of the questions that they ask, and by the way, they just they don't tell you what the questions are going to be. They just hit you with it. So they say, what's one of the greatest joys of being a pastor? So I, I said to see God, people respond to God's word. They said, what's one of your greatest disappointments? I said, it's the flip side of that to not see people respond to God's Word. Dear friends, it is possible, is it not, to be here on the Lord's Day and just be here in body, but not be here for the real purpose for which we are supposed to have come, to hear from God and to leave this place changed. If you came in with that mentality, I'm just going through the motions, I'm taking this time and begging you to think about what God has to say to all of us. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Father, we need your help. We need your help desperately because we are sinful, because we don't like to accept our failure, much less our sin, sinful failure. We don't like to look into the mirror and see ourselves as we truly are. And yet, Lord, that is what we must do. That is what you have called us to do. That is why you have given us the mirror of Holy Scripture. That is why we open it every Lord's Day. And so help me, Lord, to look at it clearly and see myself there clearly. And to see you and your holy character there clearly. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you will arrest our attention and focus us upon the clarity of your word about that with which we struggle. May we leave this place different than we came. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have an outline inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look where we see, first of all, from this passage in verses 13 through 18, that this question about whose responsibility is it with regard to our reaction of sin to the adverse circumstances that come into our life, the very first thing we need to see comes in verses 14 and 15. And that is, I say in the outline, that we misuse 
trials for evil. We misuse trials for evil. Now that suggests that there's a proper use for these trials. We'll be reminded of that again in a bit. There's a proper use, but there's also a misuse of the trial. And we, not God, we misuse trials for evil purposes. Verse 14 says, Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. We misuse trials for evil, and here's why I say in your outline, because evil is consistent with our nature. And so we are susceptible to being drawn away from God's good intention for this circumstance and into a sinful reaction to it. Because evil's consistent with our nature. And therefore, there's an appeal to our sin nature to cause us to look at it improperly. Temptation is real for us because we are susceptible to sin. God's good design for us in this circumstance can become evil due to our sin nature. You say, but what about Jesus? Jesus was tempted. Well, it's probably more accurate to say Jesus was tried. Same word throughout the New Testament. He was tried, but of course there was nothing within him that was susceptible to sin. Satan still tried. So God's good design can become evil due to our reaction in our sin nature, Satan's evil design for Jesus could not be accomplished because he had no susceptibility to sin. Now, the Bible teaches that there are a number of stages that hum human history goes through with regard to our susceptibility to sin. There are at least three, and I want to show them to you. There is before salvation. The Bible teaches, as I'm going to show you in some passages, the Bible teaches that prior to coming to Christ and being changed by Him and given a new nature, in our sin nature, the nature with which we come into this world, our condition is what you see on the screen. Not able not to sin. Have you ever considered that? In our sin nature, we are not able not to sin. It's that bad. The Bible says that even the good things we do are sinful before God because they're not done for His glory before we come to Christ and are changed by Him. We are not able not to sin. The Bible is very clear that prior to coming to Christ, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so, evil is consistent with our nature because we are born with that sin nature by which we are not able not to sin. All sin, all the time, every breath we take, we are storing up wrath for ourselves, Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, against the day of God's wrath. There's before salvation, but then there is the happy condition that most of us are in, having come to God through Jesus Christ, having been saved, having been rescued, having been delivered from our sin. And now what is our condition? We were not able not to sin. Now we're able to sin, able not to sin. Here's what that means. That your sin nature that you had when you, that you obtained at birth, and at conception actually, and then when you come to Christ in salvation, you receive a new nature, but it does not eradicate the old nature. You have both. So you have your sin nature and you have your new nature. You have the old man and the new man. You are able to sin, but you are for the first time able not to sin. And the Bible teaches that. You're still going to have trials, but God is faithful. 
And He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, again, same word for tried, trial. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's now possible for you not to sin in the difficulty. The Bible goes on to say of us, after we have come to Christ, we have been delivered, rescued from the power of sin. We can now make it our goal to please Him. And likewise, we pray that you may live a life worthy that is consistent of your calling in the Lord, and that means pleasing Him in every way. Now, none of this, of course, is done in our, our power. It is because we have come to God through Jesus Christ and thus have been given His Holy Spirit that is now at work in us. The power of sin has been broken. We still sin and we are still susceptible to it, but we are able not to sin. Able to sin, able not to sin. After salvation. And then there is after glorification. There will be this final stage in which we're not able to sin. How cool will that be? Not able to sin. But between the time when we were not able not to sin and the time to come when we're not able to sin is the time we are all in right now. Able to sin. Able not to sin. And the reason that temptation that a trial that God intends for good can be used for evil and become evil in our lives is because evil is consistent with our nature. We still have, even after coming to Christ, the vestiges of the sin nature. And that's why I say secondly in your outline, our nature is always good and evil. Our nature is always good and evil. I want you to notice to whom this is written. Now, I say good and evil. Our nature is always good and evil. So who am I referring to when I say both, good and bad? I can't be referring to someone who is outside of Christ, who has never come to Jesus as Savior, who has not been transformed with the power of sin broken. I can't be referring to an unbeliever, right? Because it's not good and evil. It is only evil. There is no one who does the good. So when I say this, when I say our nature, I'm referring to believers. Those who have come to Christ now have this dual nature of both good and evil. And verse 14 says, Each one of you, believers, is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Now verse 14 says, We are tempted and move to sin by our own, and then the NIV says, you see it, evil desire. But the Greek text does not say evil. It simply says desire. Literally, each one is tempted when by his own desire. And the translators have supplied evil. Now, the reason I point that out is is this, that we can be dragged away into sin by evil desires for sure. But friends, we can be dragged away into sin by good desires that we sin if we don't get. The desire can be for something good, but I'm willing to sin in the absence of receiving it. Either way, it's our desire. It may be an evil desire. It may be a desire for something that is prohibited by God. But it may be a good desire to which I respond sinfully if I don't get it. And I'll talk some more about that in just a bit. And James uses fishing imagery in verse 14 to describe how this goes. We have desire, and then we are dragged away and enticed. The imagery is from... Fishing. I'm not a fisherman. But I have fished a few times. And I know you need a lure 
to entice, a hook to catch, and then a line and a reel to drag away. And that's precisely what's being said in verse 14. You've got an enticement, you've got a hook that catches, and then you're reeled in and dragged away. Now notice it's in opposite order, just quickly. You're dragged away and enticed. In fishing, it's actually you're enticed, and then you're dragged away. Why is that? It's probably because this had become such a common metaphor that people just understood it when they saw it, and the order really didn't matter. It's like us saying today, I took the bait. It doesn't have to refer to fishing at all. We know what we mean by that. Not a fisherman, but I know you have to have all that stuff, a lure and a hook and sinkers and all that. And I learned that the hard way about 20 years ago when I took my nephews up north we were kind of bored, we decided to go fishing. And then going to a Walmart that we found several miles away, getting them fishing poles. I had brought one with me just in case that I borrowed. And they bought at the Walmart a Mickey Mouse and a Donald Duck fishing pole. And then we went to a bait place to rent a boat and to get the other stuff we need. So I come walking in with these two nephews with their Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck fishing poles. And this old codger who runs this bait place saw me coming. And I say, you know, what are we going to need for this thing? And he says, well, you know, you're going to need one of these lures for sure because this is the only thing those fish will go after. So he gives me this lure. And then he says, you know, what kind of leader are you going to have on your line? A what? A leader. Oh, yeah, you've got to have a leader. And he gives me a leader. And what kind of sinker are you going to have? You've got to have a particular type of sinker. By the time I get out of there, I'm $100 into this thing. Our fishing lasted about 10 minutes. And I'm $100 lighter. Now, all of this is very straightforward in verse 14 if it's an evil desire for something that God prohibits. But what about those many, many times when sin is in the context of otherwise good and godly desire? I want something good, not something evil, but now I sin because I haven't received it. Our nature, especially those of us who have both natures, a sin nature and a spiritual nature now as Christians, is quite complex. And we may have desires for good things that morph into desires for evil. A desire for good things like respect. I want respect from my children. Can you think about how that good desire can morph into an evil desire that brings forth evil actions? I want respect from my children. And in the absence of receiving that, now I can react in anger. I may haul off and smack that child, disciplining him or her in anger. I may desire obedience and sin in the absence of receiving it. I may desire honor, honor within my family, from my children, perhaps from my spouse, ladies. I may, re I may desire to be cherished by my husband. Is that a good thing? Sure. But what if he doesn't cherish you the way you believe you should be cherished? How do you react? Well, I've never felt cherished, and now I'm on a lifelong crusade. Of course, no one will say this, but I'm on a lifelong crusade to pay back or to force him to do what I want. And here's how it works. Here's how it goes from desire to sin. You all have seen me say this. I have a desire, a want, that I convince myself is really a need. Something that I, I really must have. And if I'm in relationship with you, marriage or otherwise, if there is something that I must have, then you have a responsibility to supply it. You should. But if you don't, then you will change or you will pay. Now, I asked you at the beginning, did you come here to be transformed by Jesus? 
and not just go through the motions. There are marriages represented in this room who have spent years in that. You're either going to change or you're going to pay. And so that good desire to be cherished becomes, now hear this, an evil desire to be in charge. And it brings forth sin. To force a change in the situation. But the situation that you are in was either chosen or imposed. In marriage, it was chosen. I chose to be in this relationship, but now I'm going to force change upon it, and I'm willing to sin in order to make that happen. Or it was imposed. If it was chosen, or excuse me, if it was, if it was chosen, you may have a way out. Your job, you choose your job. My boss is not treating me with honor and with respect in pay or in its tone of voice or whatever it is. You may need to change your job and you have the liberty to do that. But what if it's marriage that you chose? Do you have the liberty now to change that? God says no. But in our sin, that good desire has morphed into a desire to control and be in charge. And understand, even in those situations where you can change the situation, because you had chosen it, you can choose to opt out of it. A change of address does not mean a change of heart. Now, having identified the exclusive source of temptation and sin, and what does verse 14 tell us it is? It is our desire. Sometimes evil, sometimes for good, sometimes the good morphs into evil and brings forth sin. The exclusive source is our own desire, our own hearts, that lead us to temptation and sin. And therefore, it eliminates all rivals. There, is no other, there are no other rivals to the source of our temptation and sin. The Bible gives one source and one source only. The desires of our hearts. So what are the rivals that we come up with? Our circumstances. It's the circumstance that is causing me to do what I'm doing. What is happening to me that I don't want to happen or what is not happening in my life that I do want to happen. It's the circumstance that is causing me to behave and react the way I am, we say. God says no. It is not the relationship. We want to blame the relationship. And we want to say, it's the woman you gave me. It's the man you gave me. And God says, that is not, he is not, she is not what's causing you to sin. And yet so many of us, day after day and week after week, month and year after year, we continue in this you'll change or you'll pay because it's your fault. Notice verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when full grown gives birth to death. So now James changes the metaphor. Fishing metaphor in verse 14. Now a birth and life and death metaphor in verse 15. Conception in verse 15 is when evil desire, it may have started as good desire, but it has now become evil desire. When evil desire is matched to opportunity, or you may think of it this way, evil desire from the get-go, matched to an opportunity to fulfill it. Or good desire is matched to disappointment. And it morphs into an evil desire for control or for revenge. 
So I will change the other person or I will get the other person. So verse 15 is telling us, and when that process is over, when that conception, when that mating of the desire and the situation occur, sin happens. And when it's full grown, it brings forth death. And that's what I say, point C in your outline. Our evil results in death. Now, it results in all sorts of death. It results in physical death. The reason people physically die is because sin has entered the world. We know that. And the day you eat of it, Adam, you shall surely die. They later died physically, but on that very day that they disobeyed God, they died spiritually. The word death in the Bible means separation. And so sin separates us from God, spiritually. Sin results in physical death, which is the separation of the spirit from the body. It results in death in our relationships as well. Separation in our relationships. Only when sin conceives is sin brought forth. And so please understand this. Thankfully, there are people with sensitive consciences in God's church. Thankfully. But understand this. Temptation is not sin. Some of you may live in situations that are constantly tempting you. But you only sin when you, when you react to that external temptation because of what has become evil desire. And over time, your reaction to those temptations should wane and the intensity of the pull of that temptation should wane with growth. It should become second nature to us to resist. Now notice how I say that. Second nature to resist. Remember we have two natures? <laughs> and it should become second nature, new nature, spiritual nature over time for us to resist. And none of what verse 14 and verse 15 tell us is what God desires or does in the trials He allows in our circumstances. None of it. And that's why verse 16 says this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Now, do not be deceived about what? Do not be deceived, verse 16 is saying, about God's intentions for the circumstances that He allows into our lives. Remember, the whole argument now is God is the one who allows the circumstances of my life. I find myself often sinning in those circumstances. Therefore, God must be responsible since He's the one who placed me in this circumstance or allowed me to be in this circumstance. That's the argument. And verse 16 says, no, given the fact that it's our own desire that entices us and drags us away, into sin. Given all of that, verse 16, do not be deceived about God's intentions for the circumstances that He allows into your life. And that's why number two in your outline, I say this. Although we misuse trials for evil, God intends trials for good. God intends trials for good. Verse 13, if you go back up to verse 13 for just a moment, notice what it says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Now remember, I've told you that word tempted is the same word that's sometimes translated trial, and the translators just have to know what the context is to know whether it's trial or temptation. And I would suggest to you that the first use of tempted in verse 13 ought to say tried or tested. And here's why. The argument is God brings trials into our lives to test what we believe and to strengthen what we believe. And now the question is, when I am in those kinds of circumstances, when I am, at the beginning of verse 13, in a trial, when I am being tried, when I am being tested, in the midst of that, no one should say, God is tempting me. That is, in the midst of this circumstance that a sovereign God has allowed into my life, no one should say that God has brought this for the purpose 
of luring me into evil. God intends our trials for good. But the question arises because he is sovereign and because he does test. James makes clear, and the Bible elsewhere makes clear, God tested Abraham. Or God said to the nation of Israel, I'm going to use surrounding nations to test you and see whether you will keep the way of the Lord. Or God tested King Hezekiah, the Bible says, to reveal everything that was in his heart. And so one commentator said this, God tempts no one because temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God is not susceptible to any such desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring it to be brought about in anyone else. And that's why verse 13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You see, evil is contrary to God's nature. Now notice, we said evil's consistent with our nature. The first A you have under Roman numeral one, you see that? Evil is consistent with our nature. But now we're saying evil is contrary to his nature. And then under number one, B, we said our nature is always consistently evil. But in B here, in verse 17, we're going to see his nature is always only good. And just like sin... And our sin nature ultimately brings forth a death under the first point. Point C here, his goodness results in life. Now, I'd like to explain those. His nature is always only good, and his goodness results, unlike our sin, which results in death and separation, his goodness results in life. His nature is always good and only good. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So friends, do not be deceived by the argument that God brings external, difficult, adverse circumstances into our lives in order for us to be dragged into sin. No, God cannot do that because God's nature is completely contrary to desiring that anybody sin. And so what does he do? He only brings things into our lives for good purposes. That's what verse 17 is saying. Contrary to Him bringing things into our lives for illicit purposes, such that God can be blamed, directly or indirectly, every good and perfect gift comes from God, who's the Father of the heavenly lights. And so God's goodness is seen in things like making the heavenly bodies, and the psalmist says as much. God made the great lights. His love endures forever. He made the sun to govern the day. His love endures forever. He made the moon and the stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. Now notice the connection between what he's provided in the heavens because of his love. It's saying he's good all the time to all of his creation. And you see that in the created order itself. If you need proof that God is good, just look around you says the psalmist, and says James. And at the end of verse 17, he says he does not change like shifting shadows. He has placed these heavenly bodies in the sky for our good, but they shift and they change and they rotate and they move. But unlike them, God does not. And so the Bible says very directly, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, do you need more proof that he is good? Verse 18 provides it. Among all of the many good gifts that God gives, all intended for good purposes, the most important is what you see in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. God is always only good, and His goodness results, rather than death, like our sin, results in life. Dear friend, are you inclined to question the goodness of God? And the character of God? 
Has he given you new birth through the word of truth? If he has given you new birth and a new nature through the word of truth, you have no ground at any time ever to question his character. Christians are recreations. That's why it says a first fruits of all that he created. They're recreations of a larger recreation that is yet to come. When it says first fruits, it's an agricultural term. The first harvest was a harbinger of a larger one to come, when there will be no sin and no death. The grandest gift that we have is the gospel and the new birth that has come to us by it. So I'd like to close by asking, how do you view the circumstances that a sovereign God has placed you in? Does he intend good for you? The Bible says absolutely. Are you responding to those circumstances or those relationships as temptations to sin and evil? Do not blame God. And do not blame any of the rivals that are eliminated by verses 14 and 15. It says, the Bible says consistently, we sin because of our heart's desire, not because of anything external to us. How do you think about and how do you talk about that difficult circumstance you're in or difficult circumstances you're in? Let me give you an illustration of someone who knew how to handle difficulty. And then we'll be done. Some of you know the name Don Carson, D.A. Carson. He's a New Testament scholar of great renown. has been of great help to me in reading his materials. He wrote a book a few years ago called The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson, His Dad. His dad was a pastor in Canada, and he labored in obscure, mostly obscurity there in Canada for many, many years. And Don Carson grew up in that home seeing the quiet faith of his dad. His dad did not relay to him while Don was a boy the kinds of struggles that he had, the trials, the difficulties that he endured as part of ministry. Don went on to seminary in Canada. And there were people in the seminary in Canada, professors, who knew Tom Carson, his dad, and knew trials that he had gone through that Don, his son, knew nothing about. One of them related to a big-shot pastor in Canada who disagreed with something that little Don, Tom Carson did. And this big-shot pastor of a big-shot church in Toronto, who had pledged to give money to help this struggling work that Tom Carson led, decided because he disagreed with something Tom said to withdraw their support. And when the big-shot withdrew his support, other people were inclined to do so as well. And Don Carson was told that story <laughs> when he went to seminary. He never heard it from his dad. In fact, he couldn't believe that this big shot pastor had done this evil thing to his dad. And here's why he couldn't believe it. Because in his home, that guy's name was used in heroic terms. His dad and his mom told him, Don, when he was a boy, stories about this big shot pastor and he was a hero. And all the while, he had tried to undermine Carson's dad. So, Don went home from seminary. And he said, Dad, <laughs> you haven't told me some stuff. <laughs> why, didn't you, why didn't you tell me about this? His dad gave him two reasons. The first one is because you, Don, are the son of a pastor. And you see all kinds of difficulty and garbage. And you have expectations that are placed on you just by virtue of you being the son of a pastor. You didn't need to see that. You needed to be protected from that. But here's the second reason we didn't tell you about that. 
because your mother and I needed to protect ourselves from bitterness. And we made a vow to never say a bad word about that pastor, ever. That's a trial that could become a temptation to sin. And yet these people came out of that trial more mature, did they not? They achieved the purpose that a good God designed for them in that. They could have become very embittered. Instead, they became better. I'm asking you, are you bitter or better? God desires the latter. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need what you have said to us in your word all the time. Our Lord, we especially need what you have said to us about the circumstances of our lives and our heart's reaction to them. Oh Lord, I thank you for the brothers and sisters who came in this room desiring to hear from you and desiring to be changed. I believe they will be and that you will honor that desire. Lord, I ask you to break up the stony ground that is the hearts of so many of us. We simply go through the motions and what your word says bounces off of us and has little or no effect. Oh Lord, we ask you to change that as only you can. I cannot. And Lord, protect me from sin and the sinful desire to try to change what I cannot change. There are circumstances for me like there are circumstances for every brother and sister and person in this room and that all of us can be drawn away by our evil desire to control it and to change it to our own liking. Help me to trust you in your timing and in your way. And I pray that you will help my brothers and sisters to do the same. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.